I can't believe it's here. I can't believe this this is it. I know. It is crazy, especially looking back. Like, first off, let's not forget, this is episode 151. We've done 151 episodes of this podcast. <laughs> Y'all, that's a lot of murder. Because that's 302 murders. Well, except for the Survivor episodes we did. so But, you know, it's probably 280 murders. We easily. also did mass murders, so it's easily more than that. It, it Let's is call it an even thousand. A lot. And we've learned a lot. We've cried a lot. Oh my god, yeah. We've drank a lot. <laughs> that too. Our livers remember that. <laughs> we have tried so many different kinds of wine. What are the two wines that stand out to you as best and worst? Just off the top of your head, so it doesn't have to be true. So there was one, it was like- I mean- <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> but it, it does have to be definitive is what I meant. Okay, so the the very first wine that we tried that I think the reason it's one of my favorites is because it surprised me so much. It was that French Sauvignon Blanc that we had. This was back when I still lived in Austin. And it started with an A or something. It was one of our very first episodes, maybe un- like 20 or under. I can't remember yesterday. I'm not going to remember three years ago. Well, that what was we one, drank. That was one of my favorites. And one of my least favorites. Oh my god. It was when I accidentally bought that pink wine that I thought was rosé and it wasn't. It was just like oh, pink yeah. wine. And so I was like, I'm going to use this to make a cocktail. Y'all, that, it was drinkable, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, That's fair. Didn't you? Oh my god, yes. Do you remember the wine that you spit out? Yeah, that like fruity, fruity one. That yes. was. I, I remember it was in a white bottle that I think was one that had the label go like the entire way around. Yeah. And up and down, most labels go around. <laughs> That's how labels work. Uh, yeah, no, because originally I was going to say my least favorite was Apothic Brew, but then when you said pink wine, I, I had a flashback, I had a memory of uh, that one. The only wine I've ever spit out. Yeah, you on hated the it. Podcast. <laughs> also, maybe in real life. It, it was like a legitimate spit take. You were like, no. Honestly, can we just applaud me for not spitting on either my computer, the mic, or the iPad? <laughs> sure, but you should just not do those things in general. Um, what was your no. favorite? Do you have a favorite you remember? When you say that, I have one that comes to my mind as first. And I think favorite wine, no. The one I was most surprised that I really, really enjoyed it, because I went in thinking I was going to hate it, was the Saracena Vineyards Unoaked Chardonnay. Oh, yeah. Yep. Because I love Saracena, but I, I cannot stand shards. Like, I, I am not a Chardonnay mom. But that one was so good, and so I was not expecting that. So, yeah. In that way, my favorite. I remember that one. I still have not tried that one to this day. Mm, so good. Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And that's the last time we're going to say that. That's the last time. Oh, that's weird. Yes, it is. But we do have a little bit of a surprise for you guys. 
Yes, um, as many of y'all know, we have a Patreon, and on our Patreon, we post Murder Mini episodes. These are episodes that we would record after recording an episode, so we're each a bottle of wine in. They're shorter cases, generally like 20 to 30 minute episodes, and until now, they've been a Patreon exclusive But we've been hearing from y'all how much you're going to be missing having this podcast, having these cases to listen to, having us to listen to. So we've talked about it and we've decided that after this episode goes live, we are making all of our murder minis public. So that is 54 more episodes that all of y'all can listen to if you just head over to patreon.com slash Pod. You'll be able to find them. You don't have to subscribe to our Patreon. Um, but there is all the content. And dear God, please don't judge us when we are um, slizzard. Slizzard. Yes, he used that word. I did. Like a G6. I did. Oh my God. Is that from <laughs> Apple Bottom Jeans? No. <laughs> boots with the fur? No. Oh. <laughs> Reeboks with the straps and boots with the fur. She has four legs. That's why the whole club's looking at her. (laughs) She's a monster. I've never listened close enough to catch that. This is, you learn something new every day. (laughs) Is that something you learned? (laughs) Just this moment, yeah. I guess so. As you can guess, picking a topic for the last episode, this was kind of challenging. But I think we actually told you guys last week what we've decided. <laughs> now we that did. I now that I remember in the last episode we absolutely already talked about this. Both Ty and I are going to be talking about cases that we have been wanting to do for a while, pretty much this entire podcast. Some of these are ones yeah. um or I guess both of these are ones that we've talked about since the very beginning and either they just didn't fit a topic or it wasn't the time, but now it is. So we're going to present a couple of cases that we've had in our back pockets for three years. Yeah, we really have. But before we get into these cases, I'm so, so excited. Can we please get into our wines? Yes, we can. I've been looking forward to this literally all week. And it's been one of those weeks where I'm like, this is absolutely the best decision I have made this week. Absolutely. So, today, Brittany and I are, once again, drinking the same wine. Yes, and it's been a while since we've had the same wine, and this one is a very special wine. For today's episode, we are each going to be drinking the Veuve Clicquot Champagne from France. And this is real champagne, y'all. And it is literally one of my favorites. I love Veuve, and it's a rare, like... It's one of those that generally you need an occasion, or maybe you don't, but most people to spend, you know, 50 to $60 on a bottle want it to be an occasion. And these last three years have changed our lives. And so we felt like this was absolutely a champagne occasion. Absolutely. Um, So both of us are drinking the Brut Yellow Label, which is Veuve Clicquot's like the OG. Like it is their go-to. I think there's also a Rosé. There's others... Yes, there's a rosé. There's also this kind that you're supposed to drink over ice. I've tried it. It's really good, but it's something that the champagne does when it gets into contact with the ice. 
It like brings out all the flavors. It's very interesting, oh. but it's an over-iced champagne. Okay. So one of the cool things I think about Vuvclicuo, the yellow label, which is what it's referred to most, um, is they age it for three years. And I'm like, that's awesome. So our bottles started aging when we started this podcast. Oh my god, that's kind of perfect. Right? So when I was reading um, their website about the different flavor profiles, all of that, I mean, it's a bougie wine website, so <laughs> I'm just going to read y'all what they wrote. It's very flowery language. <laughs> Vuvclicuo Yellow Label manages to reconcile two opposing factors, strength and silkiness, and to hold them in perfect balance with aromatic intensity and a lot of freshness. This consistent power to please makes it ideal as an aperitif and perfect as the champagne to enjoy with a meal. I'm just going to drink it. I'm not eating. Are you trying to be Sofia Vergara? No, but she is very fancy. She is. She's gorgeous. I know. But no, I wasn't, I wasn't going for anyone. I was just going for fancy. But yes, in um, when they were describing the flavors, it said flavor profile. Neither of these are flavors, but the robe, which I assume is what it looks like, is golden yellow and tiny bubbles. And then the aromas are yellow and white fruits, vanilla, and toasty brioche. And I'm like, ooh, fuck yes. So ready for this. Are we ready to get into these bottles? Yes, we are. One, two, three. Yours was a little bit delayed, but there we go. You know it's difficult for us to try to do that at the same time. Okay, let's pour our bubbles. I'm trying to pour mine close to the microphone, so maybe y'all can hear some bubbles. Can you hear it? The surround sound bubbles. Oh, it smells so good. Oh, yes. Did you just hear it? Hear those bubbles? Oh my gosh. This is so good, and I'm glad we decided to drink this today. Me too. So, to all of y'all who have stuck with us for the past 151 episodes, um, who've listened to us talk about murder, survival, about ourselves, our lives, thank y'all so much so much yes cheers this is all to you cheers (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna try that again the bubbles are just perfect it's so good it's one of those that it's like oh yeah expensive champagne does taste better Now, I don't know. I've never had Dom Perignon, so I don't know how this compares to it, but I've heard it's better than Moet. I would agree with that. I think it's better than Moet. Well, well, well. My best friend and I, we've had champagne more than one occasion. Oh, this is dangerous, y'all. I'm going to chug it. Don't do that, because we have a lot to get through. We're just getting started. We are just getting started. So, we have our incredible wine our champagne now Brittany, what is your case that you have been dying to tell me about today i will be talking about the disappearance of susan powell this is one that there is so much detail in this case there are podcasts 
where their whole podcast is dedicated to this case. So there's definitely deeper dives that you guys can do with some of this information later if you're interested in this case. There's, I just know there's a lot of people who really, really dive deep into all the details because this case is so freaking crazy. If you have not heard it, oh my god, buckle up your seatbelts because here we go. This is a wild ride. Oh, it is absolutely one of those, like, edge of your seat, what the hell is happening and is going to happen next kind of cases. And the twists and turns, if you don't know they're coming, oh my god, just wait. The sources I used, an article from ABC News by Joseph Diaz, Scott Engel, and Haley Yamada, the Wikipedia page for the disappearance of Susan Powell, and Susan Powell, an ID murder mystery, which is a documentary on investigation discovery from December 2018. Susan Powell, she was the mother of two sons, Brayden and Charlie Powell, disappeared under mysterious circumstances in 2009, and her body has never been found. And if you think that's the crazy part, it's not. You just wait. Y'all, buckle your seatbelts. If you're not wearing a seatbelt right now, one, I hope you're not in a car, because if you're in a car, put your fucking seatbelt on. But if you're just at home, in a chair, buy a seatbelt, buckle it, you're going to need it. Joshua Powell met Susan Cox, who was a classmate of his, in his LDS Church Institute religion course. They met together at a dinner party in his Tacoma apartment in November 2000. The two of them quickly moved into a relationship and eventually got married in the Portland, Oregon Temple in April 2001. They then relocated to West Valley City, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. And the Powells went on to have two sons, Charles, born in 2005, and Brayden, born in 2007. For a little bit of time right after they got married, Joshua and Susan lived at Stephen Powell's home, so Josh's father, in South Hill, Washington. At the onset, Susan didn't realize this was happening, but Stephen started developing an obsessive infatuation with her that only got worse when she lived with them and they were in close proximity. Stephen the dad. Stephen the dad. Josh's dad. Jesus. Stephen would follow Susan around the house with a camcorder. He used a small mirror to spy on her while she was using the bathroom. He stole her underwear from her laundry, read her journals. He even posted some love songs online under a pseudonym. But I think one of the most disturbing parts is that he was even, like, saving her tampons. Used. Ew! What? Oh my god. Y'all... If your father-in-law is saving your used tampons, run. I don't know. I don't care where you run to. Anyone. You could go to the grocery store, tell a a person in the cereal aisle, and they would be like, oh my god, I will protect you. For real, though. Like, this is one of the craziest things I've heard. Oh my god. Ugh. And gross. Like- And for what? Exactly. I'm like, what is the reasoning behind that? Like, that's something that's- should be disposed of like you don't keep it yeah it's this i'm just stuck on why same it's the same as like keeping someone's bloody nose tissues yeah then in 2003 steven confessed his feelings to susan she was absolutely stunned and she rejected him 
And this encounter was actually caught on Stephen's camcorder microphone. So their interaction was recorded. So he turned on his camcorder to, like, ask her out. And she's like, I'm married to your son. Basically, as she's just completely horrified that this is happening. Josh and Susan moved out of state shortly after this. And a big part of this was so Susan could distance herself from Stephen. Yeah. Susan's journal entries and email correspondence indicated the presence of marital discord that was going on, which, I mean, his father's in love with her and they lived with him and now they had to move because of it. And yeah, there's there's definitely some tension. And uh, yeah, <laughs> but it's not just that. There was also tension with Josh over his refusal to attend church services with his family. He continued to have contact with his father, even after his father's continuing and ongoing advances towards Susan. And Susan's friends also noted that Josh's extravagant spending habits and his extremely controlling behavior towards Susan were really, like, cause for concern. In July 2008, Susan recorded a video that surveyed the property damages she attributed to Joshua, and she also wrote a secret will that included statements, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, and if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. And I am telling you, if someone says something like that, writes that down, if that is spoken, and then they die, y'all, that's not just coincidence. Uh, no. On the morning of December 6, 2009, Susan, Charles, and Brayden went to church together. A neighbor visited them at home that afternoon and left at about 5 o'clock. This was the last time that Susan was seen by someone from outside the household. At the beginning, the entire Powell family was actually reported missing on December 7th by their relatives. Joshua's mother, Terika, and his sister, Jennifer, they went looking for the family at their house shortly after they learned that the, ch- the children didn't get dropped off to daycare that morning. So they're like, we haven't heard from them. Where, where are they? They went to the house, tried to find them. They weren't there. They couldn't make contact with anyone in the family. So they called the police. Police ended up breaking into the house, fearing that possibly the family was victims of carbon monoxide poisoning. But once they got inside, they didn't find anyone, but they did notice two box fans that were blowing at a wet spot on the couch. Also that day, December 7th, Susan didn't show up for her job. And when the police were in the house, they saw her purse, wallet, identification card, everything was still there. You don't go anywhere without your, like, purse, wallet, ID. No. No, you grab that. Her cell phone was later found in the family's only vehicle, which was a Chrysler Town & Country minivan that Joshua had been using. So later that day, December 7th, at about 5 p.m., Josh returned home with the two boys, and he was immediately taken to the police station for questioning. Because at that point, like up until he drove in, you know, up into his driveway with his boys, they'd been missing. He claimed that he left Susan sleeping at the house shortly before midnight on December 7th, and he'd taken the boys on a camping trip to Simpson Springs in western Utah. Police visited Simpson Springs on December 10th, 
but they didn't find any evidence of the campsite that Josh described to them. And they also found it really suspicious, as do I, that Joshua would take his boys out, both really young, camping in blizzard conditions after midnight. Also, Sunday night, they have school. And yeah, who goes camping in the winter in the Utah desert and mountains? Especially in a blizzard. Especially, like, at midnight. Well, yeah, and like, also... He has work the next day, too, which is just a few hours away since it's after midnight, and he hadn't told his boss anything about not coming into work that next day. He told the police it's because he thought it was Sunday and not Monday. Like, so he thought he went out on Saturday night into Sunday, not Sunday into Monday. And I'm like, dude, that's a piss poor excuse. Yeah, because the family went to church that morning without you. But he doesn't go to church, so maybe he doesn't even know. Like, he do- it doesn't, that doesn't cross his mind. Not trying to defend him, because obviously he's lying. Who forgets the day of the week, especially on Sunday? On S- Sunday is the day you are most aware of what day of the week it is. Yes, because Because tomorrow's Monday. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Like, if he was saying, oh, it was Wednesday, I thought it was Thursday. Okay, fair. That'll work for Sunday. When the police were searching the Powell residence on December 9th, Investigators found traces of Susan's blood on the floor, life insurance policies on Susan for $1.5 million, and a handwritten letter from Susan expressing fear for her life. Anytime anyone wants to take a life insurance policy out on me, I will be suspicious I'm about to be killed. Yeah, it literally- Especially one for, like, $1.5 million. One of the most obvious red flags. DNA test results that were released in 2013 ended up matching one of the blood samples to Susan, while the other sample was determined to have come from an unknown male contributor. Following Susan's disappearance, Joshua was doing things that were regarded as very suspicious. He liquidated Susan's retirement accounts, canceled her regularly scheduled chiropractic sessions, and ended up withdrawing his children from daycare. He had also previously spoken to his co-workers and asked them about ideas for how to hide a body in an abandoned mine shaft in the western Utah desert. What the fuck? Again, one of your co-workers asked those questions, maybe call the police. Especially if they're like, you know, on Monday they come to you, they're like, so how do you drain someone else's 401k? And then on Tuesday, how do you hide a body in a mine shaft? I mean, come on now. Do you think Do you think that would be a, a good place to hide the body? Most likely no one's going to find it there, right? Like, seriously. And if the co-worker has a really good and detailed answer, you also should keep an eye out on them. They may be corresponding together. They're like, ooh, you talk in the blue diamond mind? Uh-uh, I wouldn't go there. I'd go to, a uh, ah, green spiral. That's a great mine. Real deep, no one goes there. Don't even know how far the bottom is. Police interviewed the oldest son, Charlie, who confirmed that the camping trip Joshua described did take place. But, unlike what Josh said, Charlie stated that Susan had gone with them, but that she didn't return. And remember, these boys, they're young. This is in, this was in 2009. Charles was born in 2005. Oh, so he's like three or four. Yeah, he's like four years old and Brayden was born in 2007. So he's like two. 
Weeks after Susan's disappearance, a teacher reported that Charlie had claimed that his mother was dead. To add to that, Susan's parents, Chuck and Judy Cox, claimed that while at daycare, Brayden drew a picture of a van with three people in it and told the carers at his daycare center that mommy was in the trunk. Oh my god. And he's the two-year-old? He's the two-year-old. Investigators planned to question Joshua again. With these coming out, they were like, okay, kids don't just say stuff like this. Investigators subpoenaed all footage and interviews, aired and unaired, of Joshua from local television stations. Because he'd been doing interviews, like, this whole time. You know, when when the wife goes missing, the husband's interviewed. Like, this is just like we saw recently with Chris Watts. All this news footage where he's like, please bring back my wife and my daughters. And he murdered them. He knew exactly where they were. Oh, yeah. I mean, Josh is doing the... You know, my my wife went missing, and it's a, it's a big case. And so police are, like, definitely wanting to talk to him again. On December 14th, Joshua got an attorney for this investigation. Police said that he grew increasingly in- uncooperative, and then a few days later, he took his sons to Puyallup to stay with Stephen for the holidays, his dad. I mean, your wife is missing, and you take your kids and everything from Utah to Washington? For the holidays. By December 24th, Joshua was considered a person of interest in the investigation. Are there any, like, qualifications someone has to have to be a person of interest? Or can it just be like, oh, we're interested, like, they're a person of interest? Because I know to be a suspect, there are, like, certain things. I think to be a person of interest, there just needs to be a cause for concern. Also, the husband of a missing wife is most oftentimes definitely a person of interest. I know, I'm surprised it took so long. Same. On January 6, 2010, Josh returned with his brother, Michael, to pack up the family's belongings because he was moving he and the boys permanently to Puyallup. Really? Yes. I, again, not only, like, like, I can... Even if I don't agree with it, I could see, like, okay, your wife goes missing, you need family support, your family's away, okay. Even though your mom lives in Utah, whatever, you need your dad, okay. Moving when your wife is missing and you're telling everyone, like, I don't know where she is, she's just missing. Well, better move states, so if she comes home, knocks on the door, we don't live there anymore? Exactly. It's very suspect. In late 2010, both men, so Josh and Michael, his brother, they claimed that Susan had abandoned her family due to mental illness and that she had left with another man. Interesting they're just coming up with that now. I know, like a year, almost a year after her disappearance. Susan's family was like, no, that's absolutely bullshit. There's nothing to support that. There's no evidence like they're making this up. Well, and also, it kind of sounds like um, if she wanted to leave him and was going to do that, um, she probably would have, instead of making a a video and a secret will, like, you know, a year before all this happened. I don't think she would have left her boys. No. I mean, it, it sounds like she is the type of person that she wanted to, as much shit as they were going through and as hard as it was, she wanted to make it work with him maybe for the boys maybe for 
you know, her and the family as a whole. Investigators then started being really concerned about Stephen when they started to learn from a family friend about his obsession with Susan. I mean, is the family friend like, oh, cops, y'all did know he, like, stole her tampons basically right out of her, right? I doubt the friend knew that level of detail, because I think that was later found by the cops. So police start looking into Stephen, and they ended up finding 4,500 images on his computer in his house of Susan, and these were the ones taken without her knowledge, including close-ups of specific body parts. 4,000? 4,500. That is so many photos. Like, they live with them, with him a year? That's more than 10 a day. That's like 15 a day. It's so creepy. And again, she didn't know these were being taken, which is even creepier. Oh my god. Police then also started to look at Michael, because they learned that he had sold his broken-down Ford Taurus to a wrecking yard in Pendleton, Oregon, shortly after Susan's disappearance. And Michael's the brother, right? Michael's the brother. He then later ordered satellite images of the lot. So, like, making sure it's there, seeing where it is. Really weird. When police found his car... A police dog indicated that a decomposing human body had been in the trunk. DNA tests, though, were inconclusive. On September 14, 2011, Utah authorities discovered a possible gravesite while searching Topaz Mountain, which is a desert area that Josh had frequented as a campsite. So maybe where he took his boys camping? Potentially. There were signs of recent soil disturbance and shoveling, which is something that I find so interesting that they can tell even, you know, this is almost two years after the fact, they can tell that the soil has been disturbed within that time and not the soil around it. That's crazy. I know. But the police started digging, and after they were a few feet down, they were unable to find any remains in spite of carefully sifting through all of the soil. They found nothing. But what if she had been there and he moved her? Then, yeah, if her body wouldn't be there. There's so much mystery in this case, and it's literally... I mean, I already told you at the top of the case, her body's never been found. So, all thoughts are, you know, it's a possible theory. So, I'm looking at Topaz Mountain on my phone. It's not even that pretty of an area. Like, why would you go there? Especially in a blizzard in the winter. You can't see shit. Well, and again, like, I just, that I feel like throws the biggest wrench in this camping story. It was after midnight. It was blizzard. Why? Why with two young boys are you taking them camping? I know. I feel like any father worth their salt. Is that worth their weight in salt? Yes. That's a lot of salt. Is that the phrase? Yes. Salt. (laughs) Well, think about it. Salt used to be very valuable. Any father worth shit is not going to be like, oh, these small humans that could freeze to death, like, if I keep the fridge open too long, let's take them out into a blizzard. I know. It doesn't make sense. And the fact that that was his story, it's like, okay, if you really did kill her and dispose of her body, you can't come up with something better. I know. It's like, so best case scenario, you're a shitty dad who endangers his young children. Got it relationships between the Powell and Cox families started getting really hostile, which you could imagine. 
Yeah. After a police raid in their home in 2011, both Josh and Stephen spoke to major news outlets regarding journals that Susan has a- had allegedly written about the relationship between Stephen and herself. Stephen claimed that he and Susan had been falling in love prior to her disappearance, and he cited some content from her journals. These journals were written when Susan was a teenager, so this is far before she even knew Stephen. But he was using these journals as evidence to support his theory that she was mentally unstable and could have run away with another man. She moved halfway across the country to get away from you! Exactly. So, like, him saying that there's they had been falling in love? No, dude, you're delusional. A judge ended up issuing a permanent injunction forbidding Joshua and Stephen from publishing any of the material from Susan's journals, and he ordered that the two of them either return or destroy any of the journals that had already been published. Destroy? Also, if they're from her teenage years, I mean, got my first period. That was crazy. There shouldn't be anything that's relevant to this investigation in those, if they're from her teenage years. If she had signs of mental illness as a teenager, that's not necessarily relevant to her life as an adult. No, it's just her personal information that, that'd be so fucked up, like, my wife is missing. Well, here's her personal, like, shit she wrote in her diary. Right. Well, and I feel like it's obvious that Joshua and Stephen are making this up about the mental illness and the running away with another man. So I'm not even going to believe that her journals indicated anything like that was the case. No! So on September 22nd, 2011, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography after police found evidence that he had secretly videotaped numerous women and young girls including Susan. Chuck Cox, so Susan's dad, filed for custody of Susan's children the day after Stephen was arrested. A Washington court eventually granted Cox temporary custody of the boys, and they ruled that Joshua would have to move out of Stephen's home if he wanted to regain custody of his children. Yeah, you have a dude who, like, keeps child porn. Not only keeps, takes child porn, and you don't have kids in that fucking house. No. No. Joshua rented a house in South Hill, but authorities later alleged that he had never actually moved into the house. He just staged it to look like someone lived there to satisfy the court's um, instructions while he continued to live at his dad's home. Wait, so he has this whole other place that's fully furnished, staged, but he needs to be like daddy's special little boy and stay at his dad's house? Yep. What the fuck? I didn't go into... All of this, but there is a lot of information you can find about um, Joshua's pretty fucked up childhood. His relationship he had with his dad, it was anything from but healthy. Like, it's, th- there's a lot of messed up stuff. And while some of that could very much be the reason why he's acting the way he is, I just, you know, this case, it isn't about him. So I didn't go into that detail. Nope. But if you are interested in finding out about Joshua's background and more about this really weird relationship he does have with his dad. The information's out there. Watch the Investigation Discovery documentary. You get a lot of it there. Also in September 2011, Joshua's sister Jennifer, 
she starts to think that Josh was probably responsible for Susan's disappearance. His other sister, Alina, was also suspicious of him, but she later withdrew her suspicions and felt that Joshua had been harassed by the investigation. So he even has his own family questioning whether or not he's responsible for Susan's disappearance. Shit. But honestly, with how everything looks, he's not really leaving much gray area for even those who want to think the best of him to have any ground to stand on unless they're being fucking delusional. Exactly. And at this point in the case, so again, it's been about two years since Susan's disappearance, there's still not really concrete evidence. All that we really have to go on and the police have to go on is this very, very strange behavior Joshua is presenting, the relationship with his father and the kids and like where they are and how their lives are being affected by what's going on. Yeah. It's just like he's yet to show in any way that he gives a fuck that his wife just up and disappeared, according to him. Yeah. Because I feel like even if, like, let's say, you know, he is totally innocent, she did run off with another man, you're not even going to be like, well, we need to know where she is. What if that man she ran off with is dangerous? You're not going to be concerned. No, he's not showing any of this. And I will say, this case is about to take a turn that I never saw coming. And like I said at the beginning, everything I've already described, I never saw coming. In late 2011, Joshua underwent a series of court-ordered evaluations in Washington. These evaluations did determine that Josh had adequate parenting skills a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. But they did raise concerns about the ongoing criminal investigations. Joshua failed to admit normal personal shortcomings. Nothing was his fault in this situation, even though he clearly had marital issues with Susan. He was very overbearing um, in his behavior towards his sons, and his persistent defensiveness and paranoia. The initial recommendation of the court was for Joshua to have visitation with his sons several times a week, supervised by a social worker. So again, at this point in time, the boys are under temporary custody with Susan's parents, the Cox family. In the last week of January 2012, so a few months later, Utah police discovered about 400 images of simulated child pornography, bestiality, and incest on a computer seized from the Powell family home. As it turns out, this pornography had actually been cached and, like, stored in the computer when it was viewed by the computer's previous owner. Susan had purchased this computer secondhand. Oh, so the previous owner was into some fucked up shit. Yes, but... The Utah authorities, they misled the court, and they accused Joshua of having viewed the images. Maybe they didn't know at the time, maybe they did and they were weaving a story, but there's evidence now that has come out that these images were not Josh's. Oh, I hope they didn't know, because otherwise, I mean, that's fuck, that's framing. It, that's, that's full on framing. It is. And this information came out actually in a podcast um there i think the podcast was called blood and wine 
No, I'm, it wasn't us. We did not uncover this. Oh. I, I feel like cold, but I honestly can't remember. I think it was cold. And cold is one of those podcasts that dives into all of the details of this investigation and, and this case and Susan's disappearance. And it's, I believe one of the local radio stations um, uh-huh. did this. I have very vague answers because I, it's referenced on the Wikipedia page, but it doesn't have deep information. But I do know if you want to find a lot of information on this case, you need to listen to cold. So they kind of uncovered this because I haven't listened to the podcast. I don't know exactly how this information didn't come out at the time. But I did just want to share because this becomes a big, big part of what's about to happen next. Yeah, well, because I feel like it is would be part of finding it. It's like, ah, it was cached June of 2008. Well, I mean, all of Josh's stuff starts in 2010, like all of his stuff on the computer. So they didn't have it then. Like, I feel like that's part of it. But I don't know. Maybe it takes more investigative diving in to see when it was saved or by who what user well and i don't know how to tell like how would you tell exactly when susan got this computer maybe there's a big space of inactivity and nothing being cached because the computer wasn't being used but maybe it was someone who sold the computer three days after they stopped using it because they got a new one like yeah, and just asking someone having that piece of like circumstantial when they got his computer, you know, you wouldn't want them to rely on, well, Josh told us they got it, you know, at this date, so obviously this isn't his. You know, you'd want to look at all possibilities. Exactly, and Susan's not there to to ask. Yeah. So, these images, however, were not illegal because they were hand-drawn or cartoons in 3D format, but there's still cause for concern. And at the time, again, thinking that these were Josh's photos, there there was even more concern because Josh had denied having any such material in the home. But again, it wasn't Josh's. But at the time, it was believed that it was. So it, this is sticky. I get it. Joshua was recommended to receive a more thorough psycho, psychosexual evaluation and polygraph test. But the court did not suggest any change in the visitation schedule with his sons. So he's going to go through more evaluations after they found this, but he can still have the supervised visits with his sons. On February 5th, 2012, social worker Elizabeth Griffin Hall called 911 after she took Charlie and Brayden to a supervised visit at Joshua's house in South Hill. Elizabeth was supposed to be supervising the visit between Josh and his boys, but when she got there, the boys got excited when they got out of the car, ran up to the front door. Josh quickly grabbed his kids, shut the door, and locked it. And he would not let Elizabeth in the house. Oh, no. So this is when Elizabeth calls 911, and she's extremely concerned because she knows, like, she's supposed to be watching these boys. Their father just took them in the house and locked the door. Like, nothing good can come from that. No. And shortly thereafter, the house exploded. The explosion killed Joshua and Charlie and Brayden. Local authorities treated the case as a double murder-suicide, saying that the act appeared to have been deliberate. After a pretty quick investigation, 
Officials did confirm that the explosion had been deliberately planned, and the official cause of death for Joshua and the two boys was carbon monoxide poisoning. However, the coroner also noted that both of the boys had significant chopping injuries on their head and neck. Like with an axe? There was a hatchet that was recovered by Joshua's body. So investigators believe that he attacked the boys with the hatchet before they were all overwhelmed by smoke and fumes. What the fuck? The fire investigation also discovered two five-gallon cans of gasoline on the premises, as well as evidence that gasoline had been spread throughout the house. So again, this was obviously done on purpose. Yeah, I mean, he stood right up brutally murdered his two young kids. He did. There are theories that go around that maybe he was worried that as they were getting older, they were going to start remembering more things and maybe vocalizing them even more. Because they've already spoken up a little bit right after it happened. And so maybe they'd be taken more seriously now that they're getting older. We don't know if this is the case and, and we never will know why joshua did this but that's one of the biggest theories that abounds that maybe his kids were at an age that they were going to start talking yeah well and you know when someone's two or four maybe they see oh daddy hugged mommy really hard okay but when they're eight they realize oh he was strangling her Like, the memory itself doesn't change, but your comprehension and understanding of what you saw develops. Exactly. Friends and relatives also told told authorities that Josh contacted them by email just a few minutes before the explosion to say goodbye. Some of them, including the local bishop, received instructions um, for finding Josh's money, shutting off his utilities... Records also showed that Joshua had withdrawn $7,000 from his bank account and had donated all of his children's toys and books to local charities days before the incident. What the fuck? So this was like a long, like this was planned out completely. Yeah. He also named his brother Michael the beneficiary of his life insurance policy. On February 11th, 2013, about a year after the death of Joshua and his two sons, his brother Michael committed suicide in Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he had moved for grad school. Police had questioned Michael several times in 2012 after discovering his abandoned Ford at the Oregon wrecking yard. And the whole time, Michael was really evasive about why he left his car at that location. He never had a reason that sounded legit, that made any sense. And would never give police really any any answers. And like I said, when the police found that car, the dogs determined that a decomposed body had been in the trunk. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like there's no reason that makes sense of why you would just get rid of a car that works and is good. In a junkyard. You know, if he, yeah, if he'd sold it on Craigslist, I'd be like, okay, yeah, I wanted a new car or whatever. But to just be like, I'm, I'm putting it at the junkyard. It's not even a, like, I didn't want to go through the hassle of selling it. Because he could have taken it to one of those, like, you know, we'll buy anything car lots or whatever. 
Exactly. He was hiding something. On May 21st, 2013, West Valley City Police closed their active investigation into Susan's disappearance. They stated that they believed Joshua murdered her and that his brother Michael had assisted him in concealing her body. When police told Stephen, who was still in prison at the time, about Michael's suicide, Stephen didn't really seem to care or be surprised, and Stephen refused to answer any questions about anything involving the investigation. Nothing. He's not interested in helping at all. So it's believed that Stephen has some answers. Stephen was eventually released from prison, and then he died from natural causes uh, shortly after. So what this means and where this puts us is that everyone that police know could know something is dead. So since the case has been, the active investigation has been closed, there have been repeated attempts to have Susan legally declared dead. In March 2015, Chuck Cox, her father, won a protracted court battle with Tarika and Alina Powell, so Josh's mom and one of his sisters, over control of Susan's estate. Tarika and Alina wanted Susan to be declared legally dead so they could collect her life insurance, but Chuck ultimately gained full control of Susan's estate. The Cox family also sued Washington's Department of Social and Health Services, claiming that the agency prioritized Josh's parental rights over the safety of the boys, and that this is something that facilitated in their deaths. The lower courts initially ruled against the Coxes, but the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit reversed that ruling and allowed the case to proceed to trial in January 2019. Susan's family also pressured state lawmakers in Washington and Utah to pass bills that would restrict or block visitation rights for parents being investigated for murder. I That's fair. I think that's very fair. I think that's very valid. The wrongful death civil trial for Susan began in February 2020 in Tacoma, Washington. But it was interrupted in March as COVID-19 swept through the nation. At this moment in time, there have been no further developments. This this trial is still happening, trying to get it back up and happening again. I mean, COVID is still <laughs> ever-present. And yeah. it's this is another example of how much COVID affects things because Susan disappeared in 2009. We're all the way up to 2021 and this is still, things are still happening. Her family is still seeking justice, seeking this, this wrongful death because Susan's, we still don't know what happened to her. She remains a missing person, but given, like I was saying, the, the fact that her children were murdered and Joshua committed suicide, it is widely believed that Joshua is the reason that he murdered her. She is not alive. She didn't just disappear. She's been murdered. And whatever he did with her body, potentially in mine shafts or just somewhere out in the Utah landscape, like maybe she's there and maybe we will never find her. Because like yeah. I said, anyone who knew anything, they're gone now too. The boys should be... 16 and getting their driver's license and 14 and going to high school. I know. I know. And this is one of those cases that 
We talk about it, and it's often referred to as the disappearance of Susan Powell, but it is also the murder of Charlie and Braden Powell. Yeah. These boys were brutally murdered by their father. Their father committed suicide. Most people are extremely convinced of his guilt. Everything he did, his behavior, and I know we talk about, like, you can't judge how someone goes through grief. This is a different level. This is different. Yeah, this is, I mean, he murdered his children. It, I feel like it It would be more valid to to say that you can't judge someone's grief if maybe he had just committed suicide. Because then you could argue, you know, maybe he totally was innocent and the pressure of everything and everyone thinking it was him, uh, you know, contributed to driving him to suicide. But he murdered his children. Well, and I do want to clarify, when I was saying, like, his dealing with grief, I did not, I was not meaning the murder of his children, because that is inexcusable. My saying that was when we look at him moving out of state, living with his dad, just, like, evading the police, all the weird shit that happened. Yeah. But then, yes, he goes and murders his children and commits suicide, and I firmly believe like I said, it's because his boys were old enough that they were going to start talking because he yeah. took them with him when he did something to Susan. And I think that's blatantly clear and obvious with the evidence. While it is minimal, what the police do have is this weird web of a really fucked up family. And I, I think it's it's one of those pretty much everyone knows what happened, but they don't have concrete evidence to prove it did. And that's why. This case has not been able to move forward any further than it has. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so much circumstantial evidence. Yes. And oftentimes, while people are convicted on circumstantial evidence, Joshua, by killing himself, took took that opportunity away. He was never even mm. named a suspect. He was never convicted. He was always just a person of interest. A lot of interest. Yeah. But there was never enough evidence to even consider him a suspect, I believe. Wow. So that is the disappearance of Susan Powell and the murder of Charlie and Braden Powell. Wow. So Tyler, what's the case that you've been wanting to do on this podcast? So the case I'm doing is one, um, I'm sure I've mentioned wanting to do it on the podcast. I know we've talked about it in depth, um, and it's going to be no surprise to a lot of y'all. But the case I'm doing today is the Pulse Nightclub Massacre. The sources I used, the Wikipedia page for the Orlando nightclub shooting, an article on NPR by Ariel Zambelic and Allison Hurt, and a BBC article that I couldn't find the author of. So it's the night of Saturday, June 11th. 2016 at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando, Florida. It's Pride Month. It's a gay club. It's also Latin night at Pulse. And Pulse, it is one of the city's best known gay clubs. And so on this night, it's Latin night. It is packed. And people are having a good time. They're at the club. There's a drag show. They're dancing to salsa and bachata. And, I mean, it's it's Latin night at a gay club during Pride Month. Yeah, it's a giant celebration. 
There's so many people there. They're having a fantastic time. They're celebrating. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's drag queens. It's drinks. It's dancing. (laughs) Yeah. fun. It sounds like a fucking blast. Yes. At about 2 a.m., so now it's Sunday the 12th, technically. It's last call at the bar, and there's about 320 people inside the club. And about the same time, a man named Omar Mateen arrives at the club. Mateen is armed with a semi-automatic pistol and a semi-automatic AR-15-type assault rifle. At 2.02 a.m., Mateen walks past Officer Adam Gruler, who, he's a uniformed, off-duty Orlando police officer, and he's working, like, extra duty as the security guard at the club. And even though it's this dude walking into a club, I mean, at last call, at closing time, no one really thinks twice. Mateen enters the building, he walks out onto the middle of the dance floor, and he begins shooting. Immediately, dozens of people fall dead. Many people are injured, and it it, it takes a second because, you know, it's a club, it's pitch black, there's flashing lights, the music's loud, but once people start to realize what's happening, everyone starts to run for their lives. Many of the people who were shot on the dance floor are now being trampled by the crowd trying to escape. I mean, think a crowded shoulder-to-shoulder dance floor. Right. People are running for the door. They're running out onto the patio and climbing over the fence. The DJ is hiding behind his booth with... He grabs two other people and pulls them into the DJ booth and hides under all his equipment to to try and hide from the shooting. Try to pretend they're not there. To try to survive. Some of the people who were wounded played dead on the dance floor. Others barricaded themselves inside the bathroom stalls. And because they didn't want to be heard, they're trying to pretend no one's there. They're they're texting their loved ones for help to say goodbye, to call the police. And now Mateen is just walking around the club, laughing and shooting at the people who are already on the ground. Most of them already dead. Some of them not yet. Grueler, who the, is the security guard, he immediately took cover and he, he called the police for assistance because he, you know, he is a uniformed police officer, but it's just him. He's the only one there. Right. And he immediately knew that, you know, he has a handgun, but it is not going to be any match for Mateen's rifle. But then he saw Mateen shoot two patrons who were trying to get out of an emergency exit and so he comes out of where he was hiding and starts firing shots at Mateen. And they began a gun battle near the entrance of the club. Mateen then, like, withdraws. He goes back in, into, like, the rest of the nightclub. And he continues to shoot victims. Uh, sometimes, again, he's firing into people without checking if they're already dead. And he's just shooting at anyone he sees. Additional officers arrived at about 2.04 a.m. So it's been two minutes since this started, since he walked into the club. Two minutes. That's all that's passed. Two minutes. 120 seconds. Four minutes after they got there, they 
go into the club after, you know, assessing what the fuck's going on. They walk into the club and they start exchanging fire. There's now a gun battle in the middle of the club over all these people on the floor who've already been shot. No one, no one, no one. I'm still stuck on the two minutes. No one should be allowed to have a weapon that can do that much damage in 120 seconds. No. What is actually fucking wrong with people that think they should? I know. Why? The thing is, technically, from my understanding, I'm not a gun person. I don't like guns. This case is a perfect example of why I do not like guns. Um, Technically, from what I understand, a semi-automatic just means that when one bullet is fired, the way the gun does, it puts another bullet in the chamber. So you can click and then click the trigger and it shoots. Whereas an automatic is like you can hold down the trigger and it just continues firing. Which So like if you think of like an old cowboy pistol that you, you know you have to put the, the six bullets in and shoot and then do the thing like i don't think that would count as semi-automatic no at 209 in the morning the nightclub posted on its facebook page everyone get out of pulse and keep running i mean the owners of the club like what else can they do could you imagine seeing that seeing that yeah. and being there seeing that and not being there. And not being, yeah. And not knowing what is going on, but knowing that something really, really bad is happening. Because well, think of all the people hiding, like, in the bathrooms. I'm sure so many of them, maybe they were on the on Pulse's Facebook page trying to see if there's any updates or anything. I don't know. But what else can you do? When the additional officers got there... Um, just a couple minutes after it started, Grueler told them he, he's on the patio. And immediately he returned to the the gunfight of trying to stop Mateen. Two officers joined him and begin engaging him, and they get further into the nightclub. But then Mateen goes towards the bathrooms where people were hiding, and a hostage situation began. So far... It has been less than five minutes since the shooting started, and Mateen has fired approximately 200 rounds. The only time he's stopped shooting is to reload. The representation that you've made sure to include in your case of the timing is so important, because I don't think it's as widely known and understood that shootings happen extremely quickly and it's why there's so many casualties like i i don't think that's something we think about when unfortunately we're discussing the all too many shootings that happen yeah well i mean think about it five minutes that's 300 seconds in that amount of time he shot more than 200 bullets that's almost a a shot a second consistently yeah no one should be able to do that. I, no. There is literally no fucking need to have a gun that shoots like that. Th- this is not about personal protection. No one is getting robbed or someone breaks into their home and they need to shoot 200 bullets. Exactly. This is a weapon meant to destroy. Yes. This, this is This is a gun meant to kill mow people down to kill people not to protect someone 
You know, if someone wants to have um, a handgun, I don't like guns. I don't see myself ever owning one. But if you want to own a handgun for protection, okay, I could totally see that, understand that. This type of gun, that's meant to murder. Why would anyone want that? Why would anyone think that's okay? That is one of the things I will never, ever be able to understand in the whole gun rights argument. That is stupid. I'm sorry. It's fucking stupid. Because this is not a man with a well-regulated militia. This is a man who legally can buy a fucking weapon that what is the difference between him owning this and owning a belt of grenades that he throws into the crowd? What's the fucking difference? During the shooting, some of the people that were trapped inside the club, they, again, they're texting friends, relatives. And again, initially, when it started, some of them thought these gunshots were maybe firecrackers. Maybe they were part of the music. But one of the people hiding in the club was a recently discharged Marine veteran. Um, He was working as a bouncer at the nightclub, and he immediately knew that was gunfire. I mean, he was in the Marines. He's very familiar with it. And he knew it was high caliber. So what he did is he jumped over a locked door that, like, dozens of people were hiding behind. I think it was, like, one of the the doors, like, uh, to the bar. Like, behind the bar kind of thing. Like a half door. Yeah. He jumps over that and opens this latch door that's behind them that the people hadn't seen. Like, it it was something you had to work at the club to know it was there. Mm -hmm. And so, about 70 people were able to escape. A lot of people that were there at the club described this as a scene of panic and confusion. Because, again, the music is still blaring. No one during the shooting turned off the music or turned on the lights. It's pitch black. The lasers, the disco ball, like everything's still going. It's still that soundtrack of a festive atmosphere, but it's there's a mass shooting happening. I think this is one of the most eerie details and most disturbing details, just because you're right. No one's going to think to turn on the lights or turn off the music. Like there's not, there is not. No time for that. No one's thinking about that. And therefore, the environment is still dark, which contributes to even more fear. There's the music pounding. You can't hear other people. Like if someone's trying to get you, like there's just this adds so much horror, so much more horror to this experience because it is still that celebratory soundtrack. Yeah. One person described hiding inside one of the bathrooms and covering herself with other people's bodies so he wouldn't see her hiding there. One of the bartenders took cover beneath a glass bar, and one person during the shooting actually went out onto the dance floor to try to help some of those that were hit. According to one man who was trapped inside a bathroom with 15 other people. And like this, is a club bathroom, there's maybe two stalls, right. three, right. like it's tiny. So this guy and 15 others are hiding in the bathroom. And Mateen knows that he knows there's people hiding in the bathroom behind any locked door. So he fires 16 times into the bathroom through the closed door. 
and he killed at least two of the people there. He wounded several others. But now, again, the gunfight with the police has happened in the club. Mateen went into one of the bathrooms and started holding everyone in there hostage. And he he walks in and he opens fire on these people. He wounds several. He kills a few of them. The rest he's taking hostage. But shortly after he went into the women's restroom where he was holding them hostage, his rifle jammed. So he throws the rifle away, and that's when he pulls out his pistol. He also tells the people he's holding hostage that he has explosives. He also has snipers that are around the club. So a lot of these people overhear him. I mean, they're being held hostage, or people in the bathroom next door may have overheard him. But they're calling and texting 911 and being like, y'all, he has bombs. Because they don't know. He's threatening if anyone tries to come for him, he's going to blow up the bathroom and kill them all. After everything he's done, why wouldn't they believe him? Exactly. So at 2.18, a SWAT team is called. Again, 16 minutes after this has started. At this point, again, he's in one of the bathrooms. He's in the, the women's restroom with the hostages. After he goes into the bathroom, six officers, they shoot out one of the large glass windows to the club, and they follow the sound of him shooting people to the bathroom area. At one point, Mateen, like, stuck his head out of the bathroom to see the cops were there, and the cops shot at him, uh, but, I mean, he, he wasn't hit. He went back inside, and after the gunfire stopped... The officers were told, they were ordered to hold their position, do not storm the bathroom, because it's a hostage situation. After about 15 minutes, the SWAT team arrives, and they have the officers who are in the club pull out, because they're not in tactical gear, they're not in SWAT gear, and then the SWAT team took over the operation. So now, the SWAT team is there, they're trying to figure out how to get him, how to get his hostages out. But they're also rescuing other people who are trapped in the nightclub. Because they know now, okay, he's in the bathroom. Right. We can clear out people that are hiding on the dance floor, on the patio, other places. Um, And one of the officers went in, and because there were so many people just lying on the dance room floor, a lot of them were dead. Some of them were just hiding. Uh, the officer went in and just yelled, if you're alive, raise your hand. So by 2.35 a.m., so just like 30 minutes after this started, police had managed to get almost everyone who was injured out of the nightclub. But the people that remained were the hostages that Mateen was holding in the bathroom, as well as about a dozen people that were hiding in the dressing rooms. Because the SWAT team wasn't able to get to them. They're just too far back and they're not able to just to get over there. I I think it's too close to oh, the uh, bathroom. The bathroom. Yeah. Also at 235, Mateen made one of several 911 calls. And he told the operator, I want to let you know, I'm in Orlando. And I did the shootings. He's bragging about it. At 2.48 a.m., Mateen spoke with several different crisis negotiators from the Orlando police. He had a second conversation with them at 3.03, and then another one at 3.40, or 
at 324 a.m. And all the while, the hostages are still in the bathroom with him? Yeah. Mateen identified himself as an Islamic soldier and threatened to detonate explosives, including a car bomb and a suicide vest. And he made sure they knew it was it was the kind, quote unquote, used in France, with you know, referring to the November 2015 Paris attacks. Yeah. Mateen also spent time online when he was shooting up the club and during the hostage seat. And during the hostage situation, he was checking Facebook. He was searching Pulse Orlando and shooting. He, he, he wanted to see his own fame in front of him. He also called a friend. He texted his wife. He was unbothered. At 3.58 a.m., the Orlando Police Department's Twitter account warned residents to stay away from the area. I don't know why it took them two hours to tweet that. Agreed. I was about to say, isn't that a little delayed? Yeah. I mean, the nightclub tweeted it out a couple minutes after. At 4.21 in the morning, police were able to clear a way for some of the people that were trapped inside the club to escape because they were able to rip out one of the air conditioning units that was in the wall in the dressing room. So those that were trapped in the dressing room were able to crawl through that hole to get out. At about 4.29 in the morning, Mateen told the hostage negotiators that he was planning to strap explosive vests to four hostages and put them throughout the building and detonate them in the next 15 minutes. And so once he said that, the officers were like, okay, we're done negotiating we're going to blow our way through the wall and get into that bathroom. Now it's about five in the morning. And so the people inside, they've been trapped. It's now been about three hours. Some of them are wounded and bleeding. I mean, the survivors that the police haven't been able to get out. Yeah. They're, they're laying there dying. Some of them are calling the police on their phones. They're pleading for help. And about five Oh two in the morning, The SWAT team and the other police officers, they began to breach the bathroom wall with explosives. Just before the breach, though, Mateen goes back into the women's restroom where the hostages are, and he opens fire. He winds up killing a guy who actually sacrificed his life. He jumped in front of the woman behind him uh, to save her from getting shot, and then he killed another person. At 5.07 in the morning, so five minutes after they tried to blow open the wall, 14 SWAT officers entered the building because the the hole in the wall they tried to blow open, it wasn't big enough for them to get in. Yeah. So they, they drove an armored vehicle into the, build, into the wall to bust it open to get the people out of there. You know what? At the end of the day... Yeah, they know that's going to break down the wall. Yeah, I mean, it was like a fucking, it's a Bearcat armored vehicle. I don't know what that means. I'm imagining full-on military. I mean, it's a SWAT team. It's military shit they're using. They used two flash grenades to distract Mateen, and then they started firing at him. And, you know, they bust down the wall. Mateen leaves the bathroom. He goes out into the hallway. And seven minutes later, at 5.14, he starts shooting at the officers. Mateen was shot eight times and killed during the shootout. 
which involved at least 11 officers who fired about 150 bullets. Mateen was reported down by the police officers at 5.17 a.m. And during this final push, 30 hostages were rescued and freed from the bathroom. There were that many people in there. There were that many people who survived in there. Yeah. I'm glad you made that clarification because there were a lot of people in there. Yeah. 49 people were killed by Mateen and another 58 were injured. 53 of them by gunfire, 5 by other causes. And I mean, obviously, a lot of the survivors were critically injured. Most of them had been shot multiple, multiple times. 39 people, including Mateen, were pronounced dead at the scene. And then another 11 died at local hospitals. And of the 38 victims who died at the scene, 20 of them died on the stage area and the dance floor. Nine of them were in the club's northern bathroom, where he held them hostage. Four were in the other bathroom. Three of them were killed on stage. One of them was in the front lobby. And then one other person was killed out on the patio. At least five people weren't killed like during the initial shooting, but were killed during the hostage situation in the bathroom. And remember, Pulse was hosting Latin Night. Over 90% of the victims were of Hispanic background. Half of them were uh, Puerto Rican. This was not just a hate crime and mass shooting against the LGBTQ plus community. This was a hate crime and mass shooting against the Hispanic community, specifically. It was, because he picked that night. The Pulse nightclub shooting is the second deadliest mass shooting by a single shooter in U.S. history, behind the 2017 Las Vegas shooting. Um, That was one I covered in one of our murder minis. Um, But prior to the Las Vegas shooting, which was about two years after this, Pulse was the deadliest mass shooting in U.S. history. It is also the deadliest incident of violence against the LGBTQ plus community in the history of the U.S., surpassing the 1973 upstairs lounge arson attack that I didn't do that long ago. I don't know, 10 episodes, however long ago that was, five. I was about to say, there have been moments in this case, as you've covered it, that have reminded me of that case. Pulse was also the deadliest terrorist attack in the U.S. since 9-11. And I remember hearing about this. I, I mean, I lived in Seattle at the time, so I was on the Pacific time zone, so I was awake. Um, when I started getting the news alerts, and I didn't know anyone in Orlando, but I remember very specifically laying in bed and just reading and watching this go down as it was happening. I remember it too. I think it was one of those things that I saw when I woke up in the middle of the night. You know, sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're like me, but I always pick up my phone. Oh, yeah. This is how I learned about the the Vegas shooting that you referenced in 2017. This is how I learned about Pulse. And it's one of those things that shoots you awake quicker than anything else ever. 
Yeah. And it's with this fear and horror, and especially when a situation is still playing out, which which is, in my case, for, for both of them. There aren't really words you can put to how it feels to know that you're in one place and that somewhere else this is happening at that exact same moment. Yeah. I mean, I remember laying in bed and going between CNN and watching the news to Facebook um, because it it has that, like, are you safe thing. And because I didn't I didn't know who of my friends and people I knew who may be in Orlando, who may be going to Disney World or Universal and not knowing if I was going to be sitting there and getting a notification. Right. That, you know, someone wasn't marked safe. I, I mean, I, I remember doing that during the, uh, the attacks in Paris because I do know, I, I do have quite a few friends who live in France and many in Paris and, and not knowing. Right. Um, yeah, this, I mean, it was, it was hard. It was hard the next day. Because I think this was one of the first times that I was ever alive and out and proudly being me and having my community attacked like this. Brutal, brutally attacked. And I don't even know the follow to the end because this case is so impactful. And I feel like it's been a few years since it happened. And I'm glad in a sense that you've waited to do it because mm-hmm. it's something that should not be forgotten and it, and it it's mm-hmm. not something that's like headlining the news but it's so relevant still and yeah. it's something that people should be reminded of because this is not okay i say people should be reminded of but just in the sense that this happened that there was this attack on american soil and that there have been attacks all around the world on the LGBTQ plus community. And these should not be forgotten ever. Yeah. And it's, I mean, as much as Stonewall is a part of our history. Yes. In America, this is too. Yes. And it's one of those things that it's, it's not just something that happened in the past. You have to go specifically looking for Pulse to be reminded of if you're a part of the LGBTQ plus community. It's it's something that should be talked about and remembered and memorialized during Pride Month. It's something that, you know, you turn on RuPaul's Drag Race. And if any of y'all have, have watched Drag Race, um, Kenya Michaels, who was one of the queens on season four, she was there at Pulse that night. And she was hiding people in the dressing room. And if you've watched season five or All-Stars 2, like Roxy Andrews, this is the club she started at. This is her home club. And then in season nine, which was filmed just a couple weeks after this, the queens have a discussion about polls. And there were a couple queens that were supposed to be there. There was one queen, Cynthia She's actually an Austin queen, but she had a friend in Orlando. Um, She was supposed to be performing at Pulse that night for Latin night. Um, 
but she she wasn't able to make it. And she had a friend who thought she'd be there and texted her and was, was like, oh, what time do you come on? What time are you going to be here? And she was like, oh, I'm not there. Sorry. Uh, you know, feel free to go. And the friend was like, oh, no, I think I'll stay. I'm already here. And that friend wound up being killed. And it's just, I don't know. It's one of those things that, you know, on one level, it's that, like, I've, you know, we, we've all been to bars and dance clubs and things and that, like, oh, it it could have been me kind of thing. But also just, this is my community who were massacred because because they were gay because they're lgbtq plus and we're at the nightclub a night that should have been a fun night out celebrating with friends during pride month celebrating celebrating pride month celebrating latinx culture celebrating being you and because of one hateful monster 49 people were killed and so many people who were there, who weren't there, had their lives ruined that day. This massacre stretches so far and into so many lives. Yeah. And that is one of the things that should be remembered. How impactful an incident like this is and how it stretches so far. This is not just something that happened in Orlando. This is something that happened to the LGBTQ plus community. And like you said, it is unfortunately a, a piece of the history of that community. And it's yeah. part that's still very much being stitched together because this was not that long ago. No. The, the, the pain of this is still being felt every day right now. That is my case. That is the Pulse nightclub massacre. God, I just... I just remember how scary it was in those days after being like, should we stay away from the gay clubs, from the places that are specifically safe, specifically our safe spaces? You're, Even in Seattle. No, Yeah, your safe places were stolen from you, and it was a place that was not safe anymore. It didn't feel safe anymore. Yeah, and it's one of those things, like, I know I also have, like, an extra level of anxiety layered on it, but it's one of those things that every single time I go to the gay bar, or I go to the club, or anything, it's in the back of my mind of, like, is this gonna happen again? But I still go. Because it's supposed to be your safe space. It's one of the most impactful things, and, and excruciatingly painful, when your safe space isn't safe anymore, because we should all feel safe in our safe space. Yeah. Okay, we are back. Sorry, y'all. I had to take a break, and I'm not sorry at all. You shouldn't be. This case is so impactful. Every day, still, every moment. Yeah. I'm really glad that you did decide to do this case. I know part of the reason for you that this has been one you've thought about for a long time is because it's extremely impactful to you personally and to your community. Mm-hmm. But also extremely difficult to do. So making the decision to speak about this, it took a lot more for you than a lot of the cases we do. Because you guys, as you know, we're able to separate ourselves from a lot of these cases. We talk about some really dark, disturbing, horrific things. But even if there's one part 
of a case that hits personally, it it changes everything. And I think it's that way for all of us. When we are listening to or researching or reading about anything about a case, when there's that personal pull, it pulls in reality in a way that words don't describe. It's so different emotionally. And so, Ty, I'm just so proud of you for talking about this because I know you've wanted to for a long time, but it was not easy. Yeah. Thank you. And I, yeah, I mean, this case was not easy. It is one I've definitely wanted to do for a long time. But, you know, one thing I was thinking about when you were talking is we really do separate ourselves from a lot of these cases. And, you know, when we're doing the podcast or when we are listening to other podcasts or watching true crime documentaries, I feel like too often we separate ourselves. Yes. And it, you know, is that the right thing to do to separate yourselves? Obviously, you can't feel everything. That's too much, I think, for any one person to do. But I think it's important to sometimes take a step back and, you know, are you separating yourself too much? Are you not letting yourself feel as much? Exactly. And the thing is, every single case we have ever talked about is real. This is Mm -hmm. reality. These happened. These are people. These are victims. These are not just stories that we tell as entertainment. We and our entire time while doing Blood and Wine, we want to bring awareness to the victims. And so just remember that because obviously there is a fascination with true crime and we're a part of that as well. But never let yourself forget that this is real. It's not fiction. Yeah. And... If we can honestly leave y'all with anything, it it is it is that that we've tried to do since the beginning is bring justice and bring light for the victims in these cases that we tell y'all because every every single case we do that that is someone's best friend or daughter or brother or anything and but not just that, it's someone that the checker at the grocery store notice, oh, they don't come here anymore. Like, the, these are these are people whose lives were ended in such horrible ways, such sudden ways that too often don't get justice and don't get the recognition, you know, all, I think all of us, we can name Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, but we can't name their victims. Maybe one or two, but not all of them. And they're the ones who are important. They're the ones who matter, whose lives were taken, whose stories were ended all of a sudden. So as we all continue in our lives, post-Blood and Wine, And watching documentaries, listening to other podcasts, watching the news. Try to keep that in mind. Um, I know there's the fascination that exists with the why, but don't forget the who. And the who being the victim, not the who did it. Yeah. Well, it's about that time. And 
words can't even describe how much we thank you for supporting us, for being here, for listening, for commenting, for just being a part of what I truly believe is the Blood and Wine family. You guys, yes, <laughs> this, I'm not even like exaggerating when I say this has changed our lives and it's changed our lives forever. And we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to do this and yeah, for y'all to support us and listen and for us to come here every episode and chat with you guys about something that's so important to us. And we love you all for it. Yeah. I mean, none of this, none of this would have ever happened or been able to happen without each and every one of you listening to this right now. You have impacted us and changed us in ways that we could have never imagined. In ways very few when, things in our lives will. Exactly. I mean, three years ago, I guess three and a half years ago, if we're being technical, um, you know, <laughs> Brittany and I, I moved to Austin, and Brittany and I sat down, we were chatting, and Brittany says to me, what if we started a fucking podcast? Probably not in those exact words, but close. the sentiment was there. Because <laughs> I think we were watching G- the Gianni Versace. We were. It was yeah. when we were watching the um, assassination of Johnny Versace, the FX program. Yeah. And, you know, we had, we both had this shared interest in true crime. And Brittany just says to me, like, I start a podcast. Never in my wildest dreams would I imagine we would have built such a family and been able to do everything we have. And, and it is all because of y'all. So thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you all so much for giving us this opportunity. Thank you. And we love you. We love y'all so much. And with that, for the last time, this is Blood and Wine actually signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.